Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Thursday the 14th of March 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We continue our discussion of the first chapter, Marxism as a Political Strategy, with Lexi, Sophie and Grant. This week I have two new patrons to thank, Tiberius Gracchus and N.A. Huber. If you'd like to help keep the episodes flowing, you too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month. We are only a few patrons from the magic number 50, which will mean the production of an extra Patreon-only podcast every month. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Also, make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. So I'm thinking maybe we should move on to the next paragraph, which sort of starts to get at the class, you know, for itself. The definition of the proletariat by its separation from the means of production, as opposed to peasants and artisans, means that the proletariat as a class includes the whole class, employed and unemployed, men, women, children, which is dependent on the wage fund. This in turn means that though trade unions are one of the most important forms of worker organization, it is only party organization, organization based in the working class districts, and tackling all aspects of the experience of the class, which is really capable of expressing the unity of the class as a class. It's independent interests, its existence as a class for itself. It is party organization, which can embed the particular trade union struggles and the solidarity of the broader masses and legitimate them against the attempts of the bosses to isolate them and present them as sectional claims. So this is, again, in... Even in the United Kingdom, even at this like, you know, difficult point in trade union history, the United Kingdom, if I'm not mistaken, is about at a a 25% unionization rate. So this is still in the context of thinking about how to wield party power in a way to increase the working class's position in the trade union struggle, which even if you are in the United Kingdom, there are a lot of people that have a sort of nausea about the labor movement, right? But of course, in, in the United States, this seems necessary, but from a completely different direction. It's, it's, it, fe- it feels at least like we barely have the, sor- the sorts of legitimacy for labor at all, and other than in these uh, pockets where there are still sort of guilds. Yeah, I think this definitely articulates the need, like why a party might be better suited to represent the class as a whole. I like this little section here yeah. I've underlined. Yeah. Okay, this is about the Euro-communists who was basically the shift from the communist parties into the kind of, they went to the right, essentially, in Europe. Okay, so this is talking about how the Euro-communists destroyed the CPGB. It's complicated. I think the CPGB collapsed around the same time as the Soviet Union, so we would be talking about, like, the 70s, I think. Yeah. So the Euro-communists removed the party key to the trade union and labor broad left and supported their labor co-thinkers, the Blairite soft left. As a result, the broad mass sentiment of solidarity had no political channels to flow into generalized active resistance to the government. A movement without a political party is not enough. Sorry, you just look at Podemos as and every pretty much 21st century example of when the, at Syriza, 
you know, when the left kind of channels movements into these political sphere things and, you know, into their own leadership as the left, it seems that these things stop becoming developments in proletarian self-confidence and learning the limits of spontaneous organization as well and become jockeying for state power, you know. Um, you can still make that critique without dismissing this because a movement without a political party may not be enough but also if you build like that kind of political subjectivity you're fucked is it also not grant though that those emergent things like 15m that they have a a shelf life and it's natural that once they go that a party will take them up Right. Even now, Macron is putting forward some idiotic candidate who's probably going to wear a yellow vest for the European Union elections. I've heard something like that. I mean, it's once social support is withdrawn from these things where it starts to sputter out, I I think you you see them get taken advantage of. But 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 I also think Theresa is a good example of when this actively diffused social antagonisms. Podemos is a better example because unlike this, you know, frumpy left unity effort like Syriza, you know, Podemos, ah, they were a party born of struggle. Now, and we remember- That's not how I think about Podemos at all, but go on. But listen, the Indignados, they screened out all of the politicos. Right, the Indignados. I feel feel like I separate Podemos and 15- I know you do, but just like Lenin and Stalin, one leads to the other, baby. And what you got from the Indignados was basically an emergent political form that had most of the problems of some kind of, you know, hawk together left unity effort that is repurposed for a social movement. So Lexi, I, I agree with you that we should make the anti-political critique of these these emergent moments in the proletariat, but that's isn't aren't you saying that that's exactly the way it bends? It, this is the way it bends no matter what the origin of the of the party is from. You still have to make the critique, even if it doesn't come up during the beauty of the struggle or something. When have I talked about the beauty of the struggle? I no, mean, I think you, know what, you know what I mean. But, it's, <laughs> but, but this, is a, this is a difference. This is a, this is a difference in the way people think about organization, is that organizations that existed beforehand and want to be you know, part of a movement that comes up, that's ridiculous. We have to look only to the organizations that are built during the course of a spontaneous sort of movement. And in reality, both types of organization run into the same problems, is my point. I think the important thing is to look at social base. Ultimately, I think what we're doing here, whether we like to admit it or not, is that we are all lefty politicos. Even those of us who are, you know, have more of an anti-political bent, even those of us who are proletariat in that we are dependent on the wage fund or for labor aristocratic or for petite bourgeois, regardless of all that, and we aren't capable of making a spontaneous movement happen. And I think, honestly, the solution to this awkward dance that we have to do is that we, I think instead of going immediately and forming a party, we have to build pre-party organizations that can eventually lead to a party once there is that kind of natural need for it. A movement without a political party is not enough, but a political party without a movement is also not enough. The problem is is that to give out about, say, Podemos with respect to the 15M movement is to miss the point that the 15M movement is not really a social movement. It's a like a it's an it's a premature ejaculation. It's you know <laughs> it's that's what it is because it hasn't got oh a body. God. 
it's literally just sitting in a square for a few days. It's got no long-term life. It's got nothing. The social movement, it's like a, a cry for a social movement. The fact that it goes political afterwards is a function of the fact that it's not really a, a developed full-ass full social movement. And we'll see this happen again and again and again. So what we, like, as Marxists, we should be thinking about, well, we need to build the social movement and the political movement. But that, one without the other is not enough. And a shitty, premature, ejaculant like Occupy or 15M will have the same problems. And I think Grant is right in saying that Syriza nearly took the steam out of what was happening maybe in Greece in their crisis. But I think that if actually the social thing was so strong in Greece, it wouldn't have strangled it. So I think Podemos is the premature ejaculation of uh, 15M in a certain sense. I think that it's wrong to underestimate, you know, the things that have actually mobilized people in the 21st century, like on a mass scale. If they have limits, we can critique. Yes, I, I just think that. So what what I'm trying to say is that like, I guess I'm not about you know, building because... a political movement in a certain sense. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm coming from. Are, a state you, where are, you, I... are you committed to total disempowerment? The, I I can't imagine you are, and you have to acknowledge that these flashes in the pan go you know tied in, tied out every five years for the last three four decades. I mean, I know we can say we're all leftist politicos or whatever, but it's just it's starting to feel my involvement with the left like. It just seems like another stripe of reaction when I get involved in any of the actual projects, like other than like intellectually discussing these things. What I know, but even, but even when you're discussing it, it's like you're you are you are afraid of your commitments. Like you are afraid that right. by something, something good that existed right now would probably have to deal with my political attachments too in a like antagonistic way. And that's what I'm trying to get at is that that the left is not necessarily the fundamental like origin point of emancipatory movement in the 21st century for me. I, I don't know. The thing is that it's definitely not at the moment. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with our situation. Where are we? How weak are we? Whatever. We're dead in the water at the moment. And any of these things will fall apart. They might go into a political formation, which will slowly not deliver what we want. But we should realize where we are in this. You know, this idea that, you know, the revolution is going to happen tomorrow or in the next five years is nonsense. And we should be thinking long term. And this book is a long term one, even though it, it's not a, a complete totality that we will all agree with. But I think we move on a little bit. It's not like oh, this yeah. whole book is about anti-politics. No, very little of it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to make anti-politics dominate the conversation. It just seems to rear its head. This book does not make the anti-political critique. I think that's something that American, you know, neo-Kautskyists or the more critical European neo-Kautskyists, like um, or, or whatever we're going to call ourselves. I have no fucking clue. It doesn't matter. That's what. That's something we're going to be bringing to the book, and it just should be noted that that's not going to be in here. This is something that I guess that we said I was saying before is that um, so a movement without political parties will prove rapidly to be illusory. This, of course, leaves on one side the question what sort of party in this sense. This was already debated between Marx and Engels and their co-thinkers on the one hand and on the Lasallians and Bakuninists on the other. But systematic argument and the disastrous errors of Stalinism and Trotskyism on the question belong to the strategies of the 20th century. So the idea of the systematic view of a party is, again, a Leninist invention, more or less. What does he mean by that? Well, it's parallel to what I was saying before that these questions of party, these more detailed discussions, 
are something that we're bringing to the table afterwards. The question that Marx and Engels was arguing versus LaSalle and versus Bakunin was more of just the most general concept here. The most general concept of, yes, we need to do a sort of oppositional party politics. We can't really like throw in with the, you know, Juncker, like aristocratic kind of state in the way that LaSalle might do. But we also can't just oppose all form of organization or, you know, electoral activity like a Bakuninus would do. And that the systematic stuff beyond that is an elaboration of the 20th century with reaction to Leninism, which I think is a, a bit reductive. But anyway. We talk here about this bit here, critique of the Gotha program. Yeah, yeah. Let's start on the state and the nation. We don't need to read too much of it, but we can just talk about the general idea. He's, I think he's going to talk about essentially how we should stand separate from the state. And that was one of Marx's big critiques in the Gotha program, was that it basically led to a dependence on the state. Well, I read this paragraph here. Well, let's just tell people what the Gotha program was first. The Gotha program was a program put together by the Lasallians. Am I correct? I think so. In the SPD. Was it SPD or was it the precursor? I think it's the SPD, but I'm going to go look that up. But anyway, it was like a left German socialist party. And they came up with a program that would basically come up with what we would kind of call, I suppose, today, social democrat type of reforms, maybe job guarantees and things like that. I can't remember exactly what they were, but Marx and Engels criticized it. And they did so. They insisted the compromises of expression for the sake of avoiding prosecution are perfectly acceptable. Okay, so like saying things like in our program, we're not going to say we want to uh, kill the the king or something. That's fair enough because you don't want to get arrested yourself. The fundamental problem they see in the draft in this respect is that it miseducates the workers by promoting dependence on the state. And then the second was that the proletarian class is an international class and the proletarian movement is necessarily an international movement. It's hard to think about the Gotha program like the, a, a left thing that wouldn't have a dependence on the state today. That's nearly impossible to think of. Well, the state, the left and the state got married in the 20th century in such a fundamental way, like so, through social democracy and things of that nature. Uh, just, for, just for the record, Gotha program is the founding congress of the SPD. They, they merged in... 1875. But one of the things that we were talking about before we went live was like how difficult it would be, not simply because the left got married to the state in the 20th century, but also because of like, if we're talking about some kind of minimum program that allows capitalism to still exist, how are we going to have that exist in a way that isn't just fucking over the working class by removing any kind of uh, welfare or anything that will help them, right? And I think kind of what we agreed upon is that a minimum program is supposed to make it essentially inevitable that there's going to be a dictatorship of the proletariat, if not establish a dictatorship of the proletariat in and of itself. And I think Lexi said something to the effect that by necessity, a dictatorship of the proletariat is still going to be capitalism. And I wasn't 100% sure exactly what she meant by that. I just mean that assuming that proletarians are taking power in a capitalist society, they're not going to be able to transform the economy overnight. Part What you want as part of your minimum program is not simply dependence on, on the state, but also education programs that 
make it possible so that the proletariat can help govern and also expand the political realm to include more people in the Soviet Union, early Soviet Union specifically, it was difficult to institute this notion that every cook can govern because you had specialists who were resistant to the implementation of socialism or the implementation of a dictatorship of the proletariat. And so what I agreed for is that even more than just simply allowing everybody to have access to a college education, expanding trade education program, expanding education in general to teach proletariats how to run a bureaucracy and how to make sure the power plants are still going and all these sorts of things so that, you know, it becomes possible to A, continue to run society under a dictatorship of the proletariat without needing to rely on these specialists who are still loyal to capitalism, but B, make it so that any cook could govern, you know, so where even if they're not working in these specialized fields, they have enough baseline knowledge of how to run a society that they could enter into government. And it isn't just this, like, a uh, specialized political class that develops. Right. There's this need to take on the division of labor actively and to take the measures Marx talks about in the Paris Commune to make participation not just this abstract thing or a career, but like real participation and real democracy, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I suppose this was part and parcel to the anti-political thing is the dependence on the state. Again, this is something more advocated by the Lasallians, and I think is sort of probably best thought of as the legacy of Bismarck, that what Bismarck really wanted to do was make the working class feel like the state was their friend and to institute these welfare programs so that, you know, instead of some kind of scary revolutionary force that was independent of the state, that the state would be the major check on the market and that the working class would look to the state instead of to their own you know, powers to challenge the forces of the bourgeoisie. And mission accomplished, Otto. Way to go. In retrospect, we probably shouldn't do that. What about modern Munchie theory? Surely we should mire that into the Communist Manifesto. Boo! If you're going to have a dictatorship proletariat, you actually do still need welfare, but you also need to expand the political and, and try to overcome these divisions of labor, as, as Grant was talking about. I guess that's ultimately what I was trying to say. Yeah, I mean, you can even look at, uh, I have critiques of the document, but you look at Colin Ty's, like, trying to figure out, all right, the Soviet Union is such a mess right now, what do we do in the left opposition documents? And one of the things she talks about is just workers are trying to implement their own communal kitchens and things of that nature, not these kind of state-run bureaucratic welfare things. They're just looking, they're just going to the state to get these resources and they're running into all this red tape and they just want to do it themselves. But in a society where we just view the political will as everything, the state just sees every deficiency as something wrong with its own administration, not with the deference of all activity in the public sphere to the state to begin with. Let's talk more about class. I mean, it starts off with a classic political question that if you go on Twitter, you're going to encounter quite a bit of. The idea that the, the uh, emancipation of the working class can only be achieved through the struggle for communism, that that's false, and that the emancipation of the working class is only part of the struggle for human liberation. And this is what he quotes, okay. Relations of oppression or exploitation arising from patriarchy, 
humanity's predatory contact towards the rest of the biosphere, racism, the denial of political and individual freedom, choice of sexual orientation or minority cultures are equally important and cannot be, quote, mechanically transferred back to the resolution of the central economic conflict. Quote, growing complexity and fragmentation of societies leads inter alia, among other things, to, quote, a weakening of the feeling of belonging of the working class and spatial deconstruction of labor, which makes more fragile the forms of organization of the traditional movement and encourages a decline unionization, quote. Okay, so we have two separate claims here. First of all, the macro structures of class, if you solve these problems, you're not going to me- sort of mechanically work everything else out. So class emancipation isn't really true human emancipation. The second being the labor movement in its traditional forms is, is basically obsolete, more or less. These two are taken up in particular by endnotes. I think they're probably articulated in best in the Marxist sense, probably in that sort of strand of communization, particularly in endnotes three, where they really double down on that first part. That's the challenge of, of being a Marxist in the contemporary left. And what does McNair say to this? These are very widespread views on the left, but they're mistaken. It's possible to respond to them by pointing out that working class self-identification is as much a subjective as an objective reality. Do you want me to read this bit? I have a few bits underlined. Yeah, yeah, take this. Okay. It can be added that the growing fragmentation of labor has not shown any tendency to recreate genuine petty family production. On the contrary, this continues to retreat globally. What it has created is widespread employment in relatively small workplaces. These were the conditions of the 19th century workforce under which Chartism and the early trade union movement, the first international and the early socialist parties were created. The implication then is not goodbye to the working class, but rather that the means of struggle need to change. They need to shift from work-based collective organization to district collective organization. It is also that trade unions need to become again, as Marx called them, an alliance of the employed and the unemployed, and one which performs significant welfare and education functions rather than simply being an instrument of collective bargaining on wages and conditions. Yeah, I mean, and I think that falls in line with like a modern analysis of like uh, of what's generally called like Marxist feminism, where you look at like reproductive labor as well as like productive labor, and also look at uh, almost a centralizing of national cultures and marginalized cultures and things like that. And it's not to say that these cultures need to be collapsed and ignored in the way that people who are workerist or class reductionists do, but rather that we acknowledge that this diversity exists. And that these kind of uh, marginalization mechanisms under capitalism that keep black and brown people out of the labor market in ways that it doesn't do to white workers puts them in that class position and that this needs to be addressed by socialists. It is a, it's, it's a very similar issue with trans people today as well. Yeah. Then he goes on to say on page 30, at a more fundamental level of theory, the authors of the program of the Parti Ovier could neither have claimed that the emancipation of the productive class is that of all human beings without distinction of sex or race, nor that the working class needs a distinct political party if they had believed that the working class is what Eurocommunists and other theorists of beyond the working class have argued. It is not the employed worker strength at the point of production which animated Marx and Engels' belief that the key to communism is the struggle for the emancipation of the proletariat and vice versa on the contrary. It is the proletariat's separation from the means of production, the impossibility of restoring small-scale family production, 
and the proletariat's consequent need for collective voluntary organization, which led them to suppose that the proletariat is a potential universal class, that its struggles are capable of leading to socialism and to a truly human society. So in this way of looking at the proletariat, eh, I don't want to just say, oh, you know, all these debates are, you know, not really debates. And we don't have to talk. Eh, that's the, the opposite of what I'm trying to say. What I want to say is that like, there is a way of making worker into something more exclusive that causes problems with identity politics, quote, end quote. But um, that form of workerism is really itself its own form of identity politics. And what we're really talking about is a structural position. That's vital. I think McNair is right to emphasize that people totally miss when they're critiquing Marx as class reductionist, that he locates in the proletariat something special in part because the emancipation of one section of the proletariat, in fact, the emancipation of all of society is bound up in the emancipation of the proletariat in a unique way where the identities just don't relate to each other in that way on their own outside of the proletarian relationship. It just doesn't all compute in a, in a way that would advance universal goals. If you've got like the bourgeoisie's interests in mind, for example. Um, yeah, it's a really apt summary and it points to the problem of when we don't have trade unions, to help us build that kind of alternative, independent power base, why people return to trade unions, you know, after going, you know, looking around and trying to figure out what else to do. <laughs> we, we don't really have that much of a model, you know, for how to build independent uh, working class power within capitalism that isn't something like trade unions and isn't something like eventually a, a workers party of some kind that has something to do with those unions because it's an independent source of power, social power, not just political power. Right. And I think that's why like pre-party formations in the current way to address these and that in a way that purely trade unions cannot because it only focuses on the productive side of things. Whereas, you know, you have unemployed and you have social reproductive labor that needs to be represented and needs to have like a, a both a so social power, but also a political will and a means to express that. Lexi, do you want to read those two paragraphs there? Let's do it. The negative judgment consists in the proposition that however weak the workers movement, general human emancipation on the basis of petty family property and production is impossible. And hence the idea of this or that section of the petty proprietors or the undifferentiated people serving as a revolutionary subject is illusory. This judgment was founded on the whole history of radical movements down to Marx and Engels' time. It has been emphatically confirmed in the 20th century by, precisely, the defeats suffered by the workers' movement through, the, through submerging itself in a worker-peasant alliance, national movement, or broad democratic alliance. The most serious of these defeats is Stalinism itself, Stalinism did not take and hold power in the name of the dictatorship of the proletariat over the other classes. It took it in the name of the worker-peasant alliance and held it in the name of a socialism in which the obvious existence of classes in these Stalinist states was denied. This is where McNair starts to, you know, go in on the 20th century. McNair is, is really one of the harshest critics of the 20th century I've ever heard, in fact. That's what makes it hard to believe he's not some kind of autonomist, you know, is that he is 
pretty eyes open about it, but he's not an autonomous and it sort of points a way forward. Right. I don't think you have to be uh, anti-party to reject the 20th century as a model. And he also dismisses the women's movement here and the same sex movement, you know, Today would be the trans movement that's more party dominant. Like, and then he also gives out about green politics. Well, but, I think we should qualify yeah, yeah, yeah. how, yeah, how yeah, yeah. Yeah. because he, he it's a very specific sense that he rejects the idea of a cross-class political actor forming from these movements. Because yeah. he's not he's not opposed <laughs> actually to these movements in a sense, and it should be noted that he comes out of the gay movement. He wrote a book with uh, James Gough, I think his name is, and uh, it's called Gay Liberation in the 80s. Uh, it's an interesting Marxist feminist, like uh, uh, application of Marxist feminist theory to gay liberation. And so, yeah, his background is actually in the, in the gay movement. So he's, he's not saying these things as an idle, you know, dismisser of identity movements. Right. He says the quote women's movement quote. And I think the quote there is not dismissive of the idea of a women's movement, but it's dismissive of the idea that this is a movement in like the mass sense. Read the in rest the US and Britain, where it began, has since the latter 1970s been so divided by class, race, sexuality, and politics as to be no more than an ideological expression. And he says the same is true of the lesbian and gay movement here. Like, I think that's really... I don't know, look at the contemporary queer scenes on the left and that sort of thing. I, I, I think that you can you can see that there is a problem with political identity, with, with treating identity as political first, even, I think. Right, yeah, because I think what ends up happening, even if you have like a more radical feminist take on centering identity that's, you know, supposedly revolutionary they completely drop class and what ends up happening is that these identity-based movements get absorbed into capitalism you kind of uh, see this in some there's unfortunately not a lot enough literature on this but from what i've read there's kind of this idea of like the dharma and greg effect right so dharma and greg was this sitcom <laughs> about uh two white gay petite bourgeois men in new york city that really kind of normalized the gay identity in the late 90s and i remember being a kid growing up and this is well before i knew i was trans or, or queer in any way and i remember my parents watching this and my dad my stepmom had gay friends that they were really close to and it, this whole idea of what it meant to be gay shifted but what the marxist literature on this points out is that this leaves out a whole section of people who are not represented by this, what way, what's being put forward. You know, it, it doesn't represent queer, black and brown people. It doesn't represent trans people. It doesn't represent working class, cis gay people. You know, this is a, to me, this is a function of like liberal democracy. You know, is that it, it's, it promises you a seat at the table, but you just have to abandon certain sections of your movement in order to get a seat at the table. And in my experience, I've experienced more harassment as a trans person from cis gay people than I have cis straight people because cis gay people feel like they should be able to get away with it. And you see a similar thing with cis white gay people being racist because, you know, they're quote unquote marginalized. So they should be able to say what they want, but it's, that's obviously not true. 
Yeah, so it's complicated, right? And uh, we're not going to solve, quote, intersectionality, quote, right now. But the point is that uh, he actually says something that's, that is specifically related to ethnic minorities, but uh, that I think is also kind of broadly true. One group of elders, imams, etc., are preferred interlocutors of the state. Another layer of the ethnic minorities has entered into the business and professional classes. Neither represents the youth who periodically take to the streets. These individualized forms of identity politics, as he calls them, and I really think it's the individualized forms that we should be really stressing here. This, this has led to exactly the kind of divide and conquer stuff that I know. It's like day one liberalism. We're not supposed to talk about how these things divide the working class but I don't mean this in the way like, you know, Adam Proctor or Amber A. A. Lee Frost means it or Adolph Reed means it. I mean that the racists and the sexists and, you know, the kind of structures of, of oppression make it difficult for oppressed people to approach the common working class project. That's not to say develop a uh, crippling neurotic anxiety about your privilege so you live five years shorter and then only and then will the working class movement take off. It's more complicated than that. Um, are we done on class, or do people want to talk? You wanted to, you wanted to cover the stuff on greens, which I think is important, but a sort of like a, it's it's not quite the identity point. It's it's a it's a related point, and it's a parallel development. Well, let me, let me just read it here. Green politics in its broadest sense is yet another alternative favoured by advocates of the end of class politics. Yet it is even clearer that in the other social movements that Greens are forced to choose between one or another form of economic organisation. They are divided and unable to lead society as a whole because they are unable to choose collectively one way or the other. And when a, a distinctively green policy is produced, it offers precisely the reactionary utopia of a return to petty family production or in extreme cases, the deep greens, the death of the vast majority of the world's present population in order to return to an idealized version of hunter-gatherer societies. It's interesting, like in the crisis, just before the crisis happened in Ireland, the greens got into, into power for the first time as part of a, the junior party in a coalition. And they literally had to ditch everything all the we're going to keep to the Kyoto Agreement and everything. And do you know what they ended up getting? <laughs> what policy they got? I think it was you could get up to on a two thousand pound bicycle, you could get a tax free allowance for that. <laughs> so the people, what happened is, is rich people bought really fancy bikes at half price. Oh my you know? god. But like, I just think it shows, like, if you think about it from a, just a systemic point of view, if you break up society into all these slightly different small sections, 5% Greens here, 10% queer people here, you've got 5% Asian people in Britain here, and you, you just, you break people up in their politics like that, you're putting 5 or 10% against 90%. It's never going to be able to do anything revolutionary. Only class yeah. that can be revolutionary is the biggest class. And it kind of makes sense. Or a very well-equipped, super-rich class. It's, it's well, it's it's about like a sort of humanist revolution for all of humanity, right? Like it, it would have to be necessarily an act of the majority. It has to be. Again, it's really politically uncouth to bring up divide and conquer, but I mean, divet and imperia. Like it's an old strategy. There's a reason that it's around, <laughs> and it works. It works like a charm, and it's um, it's suicidal to ignore. Like, that's the whole thing with white supremacy and how it's so integral in capitalism, especially American capitalism, 
you know, this was set up in mind with, you know, giving white workers a leg up on specifically black, but also black and brown workers so that they can, the devil side with their bosses and their oppressors over having unity with uh, people of different races. The points at which the United States government was most insecure about the workers' movement was when there was this class-race unity against their oppressors. Shall we move on to the next section of State and Nation? This second section of, of State and Nation really only makes the point that you have to organize internationally because capitalism does. I think that's literally the only point in it. Unity and strength is the big one. Who wants to take some of this one? What's the general point of this? Lexi, you give us the general point. You kick us off or something. Well, the general point of this was about what kind of unity to pursue. I think the best summary of this is... Is it, is it this idea of uh, unity at all costs versus unity of strength? It's a qualification on, yes, of course, we need unity. However, there's certain forms of unity that are fatal. You know what? Let's read the historical part first. It's, it's in the beginning. Okay. In 1875, the German socialists made a choice with which Marx and Engels disagreed to unify their forces on the basis of a program which had a, quote, diplomatic character and obscured their differences. The fusion happened at just the right time. The process of German unification under Prussian leadership was accelerating, and the German economy had arrived at industrial takeoff. In consequence, the unified Social Democratic Party of Germany was immensely successful, growing in the later 19th and early 20th centuries to a vast and deeply rooted system of mass organizations. The result was that the principle of unity at all costs became generalized and incorporated into the strategy of the socialist movement. Unifications and attempt to unify divided forces were promoted in France, unity, and elsewhere. Supporters could point to the awful example of disunited and hence ineffective socialist movements elsewhere. Were the leaders of the Second International correct to incorporate the principle of unity at all costs into their strategy? The example is complex. The positive effects of broad unity, in substance a, quote, snowball effect, were demonstrated in the rise of the SPD and more broadly, the Second International. They have been reconfirmed positively by the growth of the communist parties in their popular front periods, and more recently by the successes of such unitary attempts at the Brazilian Workers' Party and some other ones, etc. And it's also been reconfirmed negatively by the Trotskyist and Maoist uh, squabbling sects. Now, on the other hand, in a certain sense, the European working class in 1914 through 18 paid the price of unity at all costs. It did so not at the outbreak of war when the leaders were carried along by the nationalisms of the mass of the class, but when the character of the war became clear as the status national right wing held the whip hand over an anti-war left, which was afraid to split the movement. Rather similarly, Chinese workers in 1927, Spanish workers in 1937 through 39, French workers in 1940, Indonesian workers in 1965, and Chilean workers in 1973 paid a savage cost for the Communist Party's policy of unity at all costs. So let's stop there. We talked yeah. about that stuff so far. It's quite a lot there. Yeah, that, that is quite a bit. Um, so the first point, the happy point. Yeah, it's really nice when people can pool their resources. It's almost too obvious to mention, right? Like, we're it's a majoritarian movement, right? Socialism, it has to be. Therefore, group hug, right? 
why not? And the why not is much more difficult, but it has to do with this concept of the statist nationalist right wing holding a veto over anything happening in the workers' movement because you had such broad unity that you included them and you didn't realize because you're trying to smooth over your differences that that was going to sabotage any sense of international class unity. And not only will it sabotage international class unity, they will betray you as soon as they get the chance to throw you under the bus. Yeah, it, it's kind of, you know, if you look at our current politics, say in the UK and in America, you're seeing like the dominance of the, you know, the right socialist, the sock Dems or whatever you want to call it. You know, so we're going to see this phase of current development of the left in our lifetime, you know, it's going to it's going to be a failure. There's a lot of people in in that came out of the left unity experiment from all these truck groups and communist groups that went into momentum and into the Labour Party. But they're going to it's going to be drifted to the right, even if even if it's way to the left of where the Labour Party was. So, you know, if we're trying to think uh, when I read this stuff here, uh, like I'm looking at around at, at current things, I just think we're in a different phase. This idea of us getting towards this kind of snowball element of an actual radical left one, it's not this phase of 20-year political development. I don't see it. It's another phase beyond that. If anything, people will be able to see the the failure. And this is one thing I think that people might actually learn as commies or socialists is like waves of failures of the same strategy of going to the to try and take over a slightly left party with radicals. It may take five, 10 phases of this strategy to fail before people actually seriously go back to a revolutionary one. That makes it all the more important for us to stand apart from those types. If you'll let me read one more paragraph, and I promise I'll stop. More than immediately, it is far from clear that the Goethe policy actually succeeded in overcoming the differences between the Eisenachers and the Lasallians. And to put that in English, the Eisenachers were the, the wing of the SPD, like before they merged, that were more Marxist. I think Babel was their leader, August Babel. And then uh, the Lasallians were, uh, were directly led by Ferdinand Lasalle. And those two factions came together to form the SPD at Goethe. By the 1890s, the SPD had escaped from illegality and reached a size at which attitudes to the state and to government participation became a live issue. The question of state, government, coalitions, and social strategy then resurfaced for debate in the SPD uh, across the Second International and across the Second International. The questions were not posed in identical forms to the differences between Eisenachers and the Lasallians, but their underlying principle was common. So yeah, this is basically a form of an original sin argument against orthodoxy, if you think about it. The whole question of the orthodoxy of the Second International is sort of undermined by their unity with what we'll be calling soon the right, the nationalist, statist, loyalist wing of the workers' movement. I've been thinking a lot about this kind of question of like distancing ourselves from like right-wing socialists and like the nationalists and all that kind of stuff. It reminds me of the debate happening between Rosa and Lenin when Rosa was critiquing uh, Lenin's what, what is to be done. She made the point that like no matter what you put, there's no words you could put in the constitution 
that will make it so that there is not these opportunities that come in. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>